You're now listening to episode 124 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli joined here today with Taylor Brugna, an advisory manager here at the Real Estate CPA, an active real estate investor. Taylor has joined us here on the show now several times on episode 32 and 80 to discuss his real estate investments as well as accounting tips. Back in 2018 on episode 32, Taylor had around 40 to 50 units. About a year later in 2019 when he joined us on episode 80, he had worked his way up to 95 units and his goal was to add another 100 units in 2020. In today's episode, we discuss how Taylor's strategy changed from growth to maintenance mode due to COVID-19 and the moves he made over the last year as a result. In addition, we speculate a little bit on where the market is headed and also discuss how passive rental losses can still be very beneficial to your overall tax plan, even when you're not a real estate professional. Hey, Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and what you do here at The Real Estate CPA? Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I am an advisory manager here at the firm that leads up our our accounting practice for a lot of our large and, and complex clients. In addition to that, I've got a portfolio of rental properties in the Tampa Bay area, and I've got about, I think, 102 units at this point. 103, maybe. I think I might have lost count. <laughs> But one of those. So um, it's been a busy year for me so far. So last time we spoke, you had it was on episode 80, which I believe was at Q4 some point last year, maybe November. And you had 95 units in Tampa, Florida. Uh, you just mentioned you had 103 today. So what impact has 2020 and the entire COVID-19 situation had? on? Yeah, your so it's it's really been a fascinating market that I don't think anybody really expected. And I say that because I don't think there really has been a negative impact for sellers yet. So I'm still seeing um, increased demand. As far as days on market go, it's it's been very low. And I think primarily it has to do with interest rates being as low as they are. And I also think that investors are chasing yield in an environment that is not very stable due to the current political environment as well. But I've acquired eight to 10 units this year. And in a normal year, for the past five years, it's it's been almost double that. So it's definitely taken a bit more patience. And I've spent a lot more of my time on just portfolio. Uh, I guess you would call it um, optimization, where I'm just trying to look at all of my debt structure, trying to refinance into low interest rate debt. It's been very easy to beat a lot of my current mortgages with ones from 2020. So I've spent a lot of time doing that this year. Got it. So one of the things we know you've done, you focused on the Tampa market You know, at this point almost exclusively as far as we understand. How has been focused on one market really helps you grow, grow the business over the last few years? Oh, this is a good question, actually. So a uh, funny story that I can share. I was actually at 
at one of our our clients last week in California who um, is really a successful player in the commercial real estate space out there. And his real estate business is is concentrated into one area as well. And we were just having this conversation about possibly diversifying into a second market. He tried doing that out of state. He found out that a commercial tenant of his was actually cooking meth in his unit. And he didn't know for months because he typically stops in all of his his units every couple months, kind of sees how turnovers, how they're going, what they kind of need to be done to the units. Now, granted, it's it's commercial and it's a little different than residential, but I just thought that was a really interesting story. And we pretty much both came to the conclusion that the amount of effort and work it would take to expand into a second market is pretty much like starting a business in itself, a brand new business. So while I think I do take on some additional risk that I don't love that, that I'm taking by being concentrated into one area, I think the years that it took to build a system out of people that I can trust is far more valuable than that extra risk I'm taking. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to keep growing in that market. Uh, demand for, for apartment units there is still insane. So it's just been a lot easier to be able to focus on one place. I imagine that finding properties and you know finding good deals because you understand that market is got to be a lot easier at this point. Sure. So I'll look at other areas for fun, really, and just to kind of see um, the comparison of returns that I I think I would get in relation to Tampa. The problem with that is just the lack of local knowledge that I would have in these other areas. I can't really assign a a rating to the neighborhoods. I can't really estimate the hit I'm going to take on vacancy or the 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 hit I'm going to take on tenant issues. Of course, as you go down the scale in quality of areas, there's just more problems and you need to factor that in as part of the equation. But in Tampa and St. Petersburg, I mean, I'm pretty much at the point where I can evaluate an area based on the street, which is kind of the ultimate goal of an investor being a market expert, I feel like. So I'm, I'm it's very comfortable for me to evaluate a new deal because I know exactly where it is. And chances are at a hundred units, I probably have a property close by, which is nice. All right. What are your priorities going forward? What changes have you made as a result of COVID to your acquisition strategy or have you made any changes at all? I think being more patient is key and just being a lot more strict on my underwriting criteria. So in the, I would say the past five years, the majority of investments that our clients made and and then I made, I don't want to say got bailed out by market appreciation, but that's like the wrong way to put it. But I do think that if something went wrong or if there was um, an unexpected issue that that kind of blew your rehab budget, let's say, the market was so strong that a lot of it didn't matter. Your appraisals were super high. You were able to get a ton of money out on refinances or on sales, things like that. And you just kind of kept, kept moving along. I still feel like we haven't seen the effects of COVID yet, obviously, and the negative economic impacts that it, it might have. And I, I, I think a lot of experts in the space are pretty confident that they will exist eventually. So I know this is a, is, is a long-winded answer to your question, but I think just being more patient and more diligent and really making sure that it fits inside the criteria that I want, because it's it's going to be more important if there are some unexpected storms and things that go wrong in the next year or two years, which I think there's a good chance of that happening. 
I think something else that's really key is just I've, I've been building up cash reserves at a rate that um, are a lot higher than what I usually do. So I usually set a set dollar amount per unit. I mean, I, I feel like everyone has their own own calculation that they use, but the more important thing is that you just are reserving for CapEx and, and vacancy just at all, of course. And we have some clients that don't like to do that at all, but I've almost doubled that number since uh, since 2020 started. So, what, what do you feel like the role is that the government's playing in, in helping your tenants continue to pay rent? And what are your thoughts or concerns, not only for your own portfolio, but in the clients that you work with, if the government or the chances of the government potentially not running another round of stimulus, what happens then? Yeah. So another interesting personal story is that my father is not a professional landlord by any means, but he actually has a small little property that he likes to rent out up in New York and the tenant pretty much is aware that he can't get evicted. So he just stopped paying rent. Um, He's a nice guy, reasonable guy, as far as any interaction that he's had in the past. But there are people that unfortunately are taking advantage. And um, I feel bad for him because I, I do this as a job and I've, I fortunately have had good luck and all my tenants have paid. But I think there are going to be a small subset of people that are taking advantage of the rules and it does unfortunately come at the expense of landlords. I think something else is that there hasn't been too much in the sense of mortgage relief or anything like or any anything that would counteract actions like that, which could have a negative effect on, on, on landlords down the road. But if a lot of this relief goes away, it might get ugly very quickly. And I, I don't want to instill fear in any of our listeners by any means, but I do think that we are in this crazy time where where buyers and sellers are just staying strong and then rates are kind of just keeping the real estate market up as high as it's ever been. But at some point, I could see a fallout of this of, of these regulations going away. So so that's actually a good question. What do you what are you doing to prepare for that fallout? Yeah. Potential fallout rather. Yeah. So I think the key to a successful real estate business, no matter what type of asset you're in, if it's commercial, residential, industrial, whatever it might be, there has to be some safe use of leverage to amplify your returns. I think if you go in with 100% equity, it's, it's really hard to generate a return that makes sense. That said, I have too much cash on hand right now, which is a good problem to have, of course. But I think if we're looking at the grand scheme of things, if, if you look at the business as a whole and how that's dragging down the returns on on the investments that I have, it's it's pretty significant. So to kind of combat this fear or this belief that I have that I think 2021 is going to be a rough year, I'm just hoarding some extra cash in case there are, there are issues. Um, I'm anticipating vacancy rates to rise. So one of the things we do for our clients is that we've been monitoring uh, vacancy rates pretty pretty closely since this all started in, in May or June. And we noticed that pretty much through pretty much through July, I would say, that collections have been fairly consistent. But then as we got into August and September, they started to decrease by a couple of points. Now, obviously, it's it's a small sample size. It's just our clients. But I noticed that it it took a few months of lag to really start seeing collections decrease uh, materially. So it's very interesting stuff. So I I guess right now it kind of sounds like 
you're more or less in in maintenance mode and you know preparing for this potential downfall not necessarily in hardcore acquisition mode is that are you kind of playing it conservatively over the next year or are it i know before you said you you were looking for properties that are going to fit your criteria so do you foresee yourself going to 120 150 units this year and excuse me in 2021 rather or or do you see it is it kind of just up yeah in the so air? a couple things so the first part of your question was asking what i'm focusing on so i think a really good piece of advice is to go through all of your loan documents and kind of check out what the prepayment penalties might be or kind of what the terms of the agreement are to be able to refinance or possibly even sell the reason is, is that it is extremely easy to beat any debt that you've gotten in the past. I would say from 2019 and prior, if you have debt from any point in time past that, there is a good chance that there's terms that are significantly better. Um, I just bought a eight unit property that happened to be two four unit parcels. So it qualified for conventional financing. And I paid a little points to to buy down the rate, but it was 2.875%, which is just absurd. And even commercial rates I'm seeing uh, on a five plus unit I was looking at, it was in the high threes, low fours. So that's incredible. So I really think you could spend an, an entire year just kind of looking at a larger portfolio and, and changing the structure up a little bit. Um, as far as future growth plans, I'm hoping what happens is that the extra cash that I'm building up will allow me to have a a larger multifamily acquisition at some point that I feel really good about. So in the past, I'll save up a certain dollar amount that is able to buy a two unit, a three unit, a four unit, something like that. I've gotten as high as 12, but the lack of patience kind of has me spending and investing that money pretty much immediately as soon as it's available. Now that I'm being more patient, having some time to kind of optimize the portfolio instead, there might be a 20 or 30 unit that comes up that hopefully makes perfect sense. And that because I've been saving, I'll be able to acquire something like that. So I wouldn't be surprised or I'm hoping the case is, is that I'm I'm very patient in 2021, but maybe one good larger deal comes up that I could take down. So. And how would this larger deal change like your current portfolio? I know, you know, you mentioned you have like two to kind of like 12 unit properties, you know, a 30 unit property is, is a little bit different in terms of the management. It's just a little bit of a different beast. Uh, How does that impact? Yeah. So I think, I, I don't know kind of what unit count or what amount of work caused the change in mindset, but I really don't look at the, like, I don't analyze the portfolio at a home by home basis anymore, because I think you have to really look at trends and kind of certain areas and and certain parts of your portfolio. So just as an example, something that I might consider is that, so I might be able to buy a 30 unit apartment in 2021. I still have single family homes, five or six of them that I really like, but they've appreciated to the point where they don't really make sense to have as rentals. But I, I really haven't had a chance to unload them, 1031 exchange, something like that. I've got some, to, to bring in some tax into this, I've got some uh, passive losses that I can't use. So I think uh, selling a home might be a great idea because the tax bill will be non-existent essentially because I could just offset those. And I'm, I'm unfortunately not a real estate professional, but on the bright side, it does let me manage the strategy that way. But 
to answer your question, yeah. So there are properties that I think have appreciated to the point where as a rental, it doesn't really make sense that I could unload. And there's also, I just think the the smaller units are, are a similar amount of work for the same type of returns. So I'll probably look at highly appreciated single families first, and then I'll and, and then I'll move up to duplexes to try to maybe consolidate or trade into a larger buildings, but have a smaller number of of, of actual properties. So, you know, tell one thing that you had mentioned in there was that you know, unfortunately, you're not a real estate professional. However, because you have all these passive losses, you're going to be able to offset pretty much the tax when you sell a property. And there's benefit in that. So would you be able to talk about a little bit more about that? Because there's a lot of people out here who listen to this podcast. I think the cream of the crop is always the real estate professional status. And it is very powerful. It is very powerful. But like you said, there's other ways you can use these losses in a strategy. Sure, absolutely. So over the past five or six years, I would say each year, the portfolio, as it's gotten larger, the amount of losses that I've been able to accumulate have, have increased. So in years one and two, probably close to break even, small loss, things like that. But as soon as the portfolio got a little bit larger, I was taking on a lot more rehab projects. A greater percentage of the portfolio wasn't stabilized. And typically what that means is that from a, a tax perspective, there's going to be a lot of improvements, a lot of depreciation, a lot of losses because there, is, there isn't steady rental income on a, on a, on a portion of, of the portfolio. So over time, it just kept building up on my tax return. So how that works is that if I have a loss from 2017, let's say, that I can't use, it'll carry over to 18. And then if I have losses in 18, it'll take the 18 losses, it'll add the 17 losses, and it'll keep carrying forward until they're actually used. So there's two major ways to use passive losses. The first one is that you have passive income to offset it. So let's say you have rental income that is taxable after depreciation. I have a really good year or I start buying like triple net leases that are very consistent in what my income is going to be and they generate taxable income. The first thing that will happen is that these losses will offset that income. So that's the first thing you can do. That doesn't really apply to me yet because I, I don't have a stable portfolio 100% of the time and I'm still looking for these losses. But the second way is that if you dispose of a passive activity, it can offset your suspended passive losses. So if I've taken losses for, for, for the past five years, I have a highly appreciated rental property. The really cool thing about this strategy is that I, I can choose properties that have a certain amount of gain that I can then use to offset these losses. And then I start from zero and I, and I don't have a tax bill either. So obviously I could let you guys speak to the real estate professional status and why I don't qualify for that because you guys are the pros for sure. But that strategy is at least good for someone that does not qualify. Well, you don't have real estate professional status because I make you work too much. That's why. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> right? You have a full-time job. And as we know, there have been uh, quite a few tax court cases on people with full-time jobs that think that they are also real estate professional statuses or, or also qualify as a real estate professional. And not one of them has won. Not one of them has won. So if you have a full-time job and you've been told that you can qualify as a real estate professional, you have been lied to and uh, you will lose. Actually, I'm an optimist. You know, I believe that someday somebody will prove that you can have a full-time job 
and also qualify as a real estate professional. But well, so I'm I'm a lot calling, of work. <laughs> I'm calling on all of our listeners to challenge me. Shoot me a message or email LinkedIn. Um, if you <laughs> are if you are as close as me as qualifying with a full time job, because I don't know if there are many people out there that are closer, but. It's I think what you really need is an accountability partner. You need you need listeners to email you and say, Taylor, I know it's Sunday at 10 p.m., but I just want to make sure that you're working on your rentals because you have to record 13-hour days and you're not allowed to take vacation. So email him on Christmas too. Make, don't let him take breaks, guys. Any day that he's out at the CPA firm, I will send out a social media blast and let everybody know that Taylor's out sick so that everybody can hound him, make sure he's working. (laughs) It's really funny and ironic that we talk about this because there's no doubt that, that not being a real estate professional, it costs me a lot of money. Right. And it's, it's something that I would love to be able to, to achieve. But that said, I've taken a completely different mindset and the mindset that I take is I want to spend as little time as I possibly can on the business instead of the opposite. So I'm more than willing to trade off, uh, building systems that has me involved at an extremely high level than as opposed to spending all of that time to be able to qualify. So they, they, there are there are pros and cons of both. I, I, I don't think it's a black and white, oh, I'm going to save X dollars by being a real estate professional as opposed to the amount of time you spend too. So just keep yeah. that in mind. Yeah, good thoughts. Tom, why is it nearly impossible for somebody with a full-time job to qualify as a real estate professional? Yeah, because, you know, the IRS looks at a full-time job as 2,080 hours per year. It's about 40 hours a week for 52 weeks, right? So in order to qualify as a real estate professional, you need to work 750 hours and more than half your total working time in a real property trader business. So that means you need to spend at least 2,080 hours, you know, probably comfortably more than that to actually, you know, make it and make it past that finish line um, and qualify. And that would basically be 80-plus hours, weeks, per year consistently so uh, for 52 so, so you're telling me i gotta i gotta work my w2 happen. job 2080 hours and then i gotta spend an additional 2080 hours on real estate how am i gonna do that yeah. you guys how am i gonna do that 81 how yeah. are you gonna do it that's a lot man <laughs> that, it's a good question i mean well first of all you have to probably have a pretty sizable portfolio really sizable portfolio yeah. that much time to, to actually be able to work on it. you probably have to have no property managers or very limited use of property managers or at least self-managed a, a good portion of but your dude property. i listen to the real estate cpa um, podcast every single week that's at least one hour a week that's 52 hours <laughs> i also i'm going to take the tax course you know that's going to be another 15 hours i've also taken all these educational courses i've gone to the seminars and the meetups all that time counts right no, no, no. Education time does not count. Uh, you know, those would be considered investor hours. Generally speaking, the IRS and the tax courts have been you know, relatively clear on their position on those issues. And at the end of the day, a real estate professional is someone who is materially participating in their real estate businesses and generally listening to a podcast like this. Well, educational for sure uh, is not going to be materially participating in your rental business. 750 personal service hours, personal service hours has to affect the day-to-day operations of the rentals. If you don't have personal service hours, those are not hours that count for real estate professional status. There's no difference between a material participation hour and a real estate professional status hour. They're all the same. So all you're looking for are personal service hours. Do my personal service hours affect the day-to-day operations of the rentals. If you don't believe us, if you think that we're full of junk, you can go check out two tax court cases. One is Lucero versus Commissioner that dropped September 2020. 
And then the other is Hafapur versus Commissioner, which came out a while ago. Both of those tax court cases, the judges specifically disallowed and specifically called out education, research, and investor level hours as not counting as personal service hours in a real property trader business. And if it doesn't count as a personal service hour, it's not a material participation hour. It's not a real estate professional status hour because guess what? They're one and the same. It just doesn't count. So if you listen to podcasts, if you take the courses, it's all good stuff. You're gaining knowledge, but it doesn't affect the day-to-day operation of your rentals. Your rentals are still going to pay rent or you're still going to collect rent. You're still going to pay the bills. It's not going to affect the day-to-day operation. So to Tom's point, you have to be legitimately working on the portfolio. You have to basically not have a property manager or you have to be rehabbing property that's going to be a rental property at the within that same calendar year. You got to really be be working on it. So don't don't get caught trying to inflate your hours because there are literally hundreds of tax court cases where taxpayers have done that and they all lose. <laughs> so we, we don't want to see you lose. So be careful. Be careful if you're going to go the real estate professional status route. I, I think we should do this. I think Tom and Brandon have solidified themselves as experts in this space. I've seen the countless hours of research you guys have done and quality content you put out. And, and I think the whole community really appreciates it. But I think that I should do everything I can to qualify in 2021. I should let you guys both fight it for me, challenge the IRS and win. So maybe you guys should do that. And then it'll really prove that both of you are experts in the space. And I'll do everything by the book. I'll work a a thousand hours a week if I have to, but it would be fun to see you guys go to battle. So (laughs) I think that, I think that we need your house's (laughs) approval on this. (laughs) (laughs) She's never going to see you. She's never going to see you. (laughs) Yeah. That's another thing you got to consider too, right? Um, Is, you know, if you're going to work that much, what's your personal life going to be like? And that's why it kind of makes it unrealistic to to actually work those hours. But Taylor, if you want to, if you want to be the guinea pig, let's, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's funny because it goes exactly back to kind of what I was saying earlier that I would rather have a certain lifestyle with a lot less time spent on it than being able to qualify. And I've, I've come to terms with that. So I, it's, it's nice that I don't have that um, over my head kind of, Oh, I wish I qualified. I wish I qualified. I've, I've come to peace with it. So, yeah. So if you can't qualify as a real estate professional, like you said, you, you start accumulating suspended passive losses, which is not the worst thing because now you can go and sell property, assuming that you haven't made some sort of aggregation election, but you can sell property and you can use these suspended passive losses to offset the gain on sale. And I want to talk about this real quick because I had a question from somebody the other day about how suspended passive losses are applied whenever they're unlocked. The only way to tap into suspended passive losses is to generate passive income. doesn't have to be for my rentals. I can be investing in a business that I don't materially participate in and the cash flow is passive income. So I can use the passive income on the the, the suspended passive losses. So suspended passive losses can offset passive income. They can also offset the passive gain or this the gain on sale from a passive rental activity. So if I sell my rental at some later point, I can use the suspended passive losses that were created from that rental or from other rentals. So multiple rental B and C can offset the gain on rental A. Or if I sell rental A and then I go and invest in a syndication and I get a passive loss back, that passive loss can offset rental A. So all the passive losses, all the suspended passive losses can offset all the gain Again, assuming that I haven't made that aggregation election um, that we're not going to go into right now. But this, the ordering rules are detailed in section 469 G1 cap A. And what it says is if you have suspended passive losses, they're first going to offset 
the depreciation recapture and the gain on sale from the activity that's sold. Any additional suspended passive losses at that point will then offset your ordinary income. And that's only directly related to my the one property that created the loss. So if rental A has gain of 10,000 and a suspended loss of 8,000, then the net gain is $2,000. If rental A has gain of 10,000 and suspended passive losses of 12,000, then the net loss is 2,000 and that $2,000 can now offset my W-2 income. If rental A has a $10,000 gain, $8,000 of suspended losses, and then rentals B, C, and D have $50,000 of suspended losses, I can only use the losses to offset rental A's gain. So I can only use an additional $2,000 of losses from rental B, C, and D at this point. I cannot automatically unlock rental B, C, and D's suspended passive losses whenever I sell rental A. So it is capped at the total gain unless that one property itself has more suspended passive losses than it does capital gain. But the one thing that I want to make clear here is, is based on those ordering rules, what you're not doing is you're not using the suspended passive losses to offset your ordinary income, okay? Because that, that's a point of confusion. And, and it's a point of confusion because of how it's reported on your tax returns. But at the end of the day, it's not offsetting your ordinary income. So you cannot create suspended passive losses, sell a rental, get the capital gain rates on the rental, and then take my suspended passive losses against my 37% tax rate. It does not work like that. So the suspended passive losses offset the depreciation recapture first, then they offset the capital gain on the rental sold. If there's any additional suspended passive losses from that particular rental property, now you can go and offset your W-2 income and your business income. There you have it. The passive loss ordering rules explained, demystified. <laughs> I, I tried really hard to not bring tax into this discussion and just keep it real estate, but I knew we couldn't get there. So... Yeah, you know, at some point it's got to cross over. But, you know, one, one of the things I like that you said before is your outlook on the real estate professional status and just saying, you know what, I, I like a certain lifestyle and I'm content, you know, having my passive losses, having it be able to mitigate, you know, the tax on my rental activities and just trying to systematize the business to the point where you're not really doing all that much and it's it's more passive for you i think that's something people have to consider real estate isn't just about taxes it is about building wealth and being able to have you know an income source that is more passive and you're not gonna have to kill yourself on a day-to-day basis trying to earn that income if you will yeah and it's i think one of my my favorite parts of my career here is that i get to see what other really cool, complex clients are doing in their business and how how they choose to strategize and kind of run their operations. But I think a lot of times our, our clients look to us not only for tax advice, but just general a sounding board as someone that understands how this business works. And a lot of our clients, when they originally come in, they're spending a lot of time on low value tasks. And it might be bookkeeping, it might be paying bills, it might be paying contractors, it might be self-managing some properties that they probably shouldn't be. But I've seen clients grow to a point of scale and it's, it's very congruent with kind of how I've scaled my portfolio out. And there just becomes a point of scale that the value of time spent on self-managing or making that decision on something, is just not that important because there's this point of scale that that choosing to refinance a portfolio of debt or choosing to acquire a new property is way more valuable than anything you'll be doing uh, like that. And I really try to stress to my clients that if, if something can be 
outsourced at a much less valuable rate. And it just, it pretty much always makes sense to do so because I think real estate naturally can be a time consuming business. It's a very admin heavy business and you just need to be cognizant of that and be able to identify what you don't need to be doing. So makes a ton of sense. So, you know, I, I guess at this point, if our listeners wanted to learn more about what you have going on or what you're doing, what would be the best way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm available through all forms of social media. Email is great. LinkedIn is great. But if you go to therealestatecpa.com, my uh, bio should be right there in the in the our team section or about us section, right? I, I forget the actual term we use, but uh, feel free to email or, or reach out and I'll be happy to talk some real estate with you guys. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on today, Taylor. It's been definitely an exciting episode. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.